This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're bringing you a panel discussion on storytelling collective The Moth, which 16 years ago launched what has become a worldwide storytelling movement. In this captivating conversation, we join novelist and Moth founder George Dawes Green, writer Andrew Solomon, and The Moth's longtime artistic director, Catherine Burns, for a performance and discussion with NYPL's Paul Holdengraber about the craft of storytelling and its power to reshape the world. I'm riding on the 7 train. Uh, it's Halloween a few years ago. I'm with my mother-in-law. Uh, my wife is working, and my mother-in-law and her are going to uh, go to see the police at Madison Square Garden that night. It was just a few years ago. And we're on the 7, and, and I'm pointing out uh, uh, the Five Points building, the graffiti mecca there uh, in Long Island City. And it's it's just the sun's coming down. She's taking pictures. And I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with my mother-in-law for six hours. Uh, it's my mother-in-law. When I have friends come into town, you know, we go out day drinking. Uh, but she can't. <laughs> she's a teetotaler and doesn't do any of that stuff. And I have to hide what I do uh, from her. So uh, I figure, she, you know, what are we going to do? We, we take the, the 7 train into Times Square and I take her up to... 46th Street and Broadway, where, where that uh, grate is with the sound sculpture underneath that has the white noise coming up from below. People think it's a uh, vibration because of the confluence of subway lines, but it's actually a sound sculpture uh, installed in the 70s, and there's no sign. And you can stand there, and the white noise will block out everything around you, and you can have a quiet moment in the middle of the chaos of Times Square. And she loves it. She's a a, a yoga instructor and a holistic everything, and uh, she enjoys that little quiet moment. So we, we walk uh, up 42nd Street at, over here toward Bryan Park, and there's that pots and pans guy playing drums on the street, and we stop and watch him, and she takes pictures and gives him money. Uh, and the other, she gives him money and then takes pictures because that guy is insistent. Uh, we sit in Bryan Park for a while. It's a beautiful lawn. It's just a crisp, amazing fall day in New York. There's not a cloud in the sky, and the temperature is perfect. And uh, she gets a phone call from uh, her other daughter. She had just had another baby. There's three babies. Uh, there's babies everywhere in the family. We don't have any babies. And, and I've been meaning to talk to her about that because she's a grandmother now, and she wants, I guess, more babies. And uh, it's time for her to hear that we're not going to have any babies. But that's a hard subject to broach. We've known each other for a long time. Uh, at this point, we've known each other for about 11 years, and uh, we've always been friends. She's always been good to me, and I've been good to her, and we've gotten along. But she's still my mother-in-law. Uh, we, we end up uh, just walking down Broadway, and, and we walk down and get to, uh, you know, Herald uh, Square and sit down there and just watch everything and all the people. 
uh, and then uh, she buys some cigarettes. Uh, I'm the only person that she smokes around, uh, just like uh, my wife's father is. The, I'm the only person that he drinks and curses around. I seem to give people license to do the things that nobody else lets them to do. I don't know what that says, but. Um, we walk uh, down to Madison Square Park, and that's my favorite lawn in the city. And th that was when they had uh, those big aluminum trees that were in that middle oval uh, garden. And uh, the branches reached up in the sky and made an arch and touched. And we, we lay underneath that, and we just talked about everything and nothing. And, and you know, she, was, she got a call from her ex-husband, her other ex-husband. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, she said, he's so difficult. I said, well, Linda, he's a, he's a dick. And she said, no one's ever told me that before. I was like, well, everyone's lying to you. Uh, and, uh, we sit there for a while and then we walk down toward, uh, Union Square and there's a, the market out there and she buys these, uh, she's looking at these, uh, stretchy shirts with each one is, has a different handmade silkscreen design on it. This artist with a pierced nose is making them and, she goes to buy like eight of them and she pulls out her ex-husband's credit card and uh, gives it to the lady. And the lady's like, oh, that'd be, uh, that's $110. She's like, how about you knock a little off? And then and Linda's like, no, no, no. I was like, no, ex-husband, you got to start doing this. And so she knocked her off 25 bucks and she got a deal. And uh, we walked down to Washington Square Park and we sat and watched the guy who sits there with the squirrels all over his body and the and uh the next to the guy with the pigeons all over his body and they were just it was fascinating and i say linda listen i gotta tell you something uh you know sarah and i aren't gonna have kids uh, it, it's just you know my wife has epilepsy uh it's too much my my career is too weird uh to not concentrate on i guess and uh, i can't we can't have, we're just not going to have kids. And she said, that's okay. I didn't think you guys would. She said, you guys are each other's best friend. Your job is to take care of her and her job is to take care of you. And you don't need another distraction. You're both a mess. So it's good that you're, <laughs> it makes me happy. She lives in Connecticut. It makes me happy when I'm at home that I can know that she's looking out for you and you're looking out for her. Please don't have kids. And a weight was lifted off my shoulders and, and we picked out an Indian restaurant and then Sarah came down and we all ate and we both doted over the woman that we both love more than anybody in the world. And we walked up to, back up to Union Square and they got on the, the train and went to Madison Square Garden and I sat and watched the chaos of Halloween in Union Square and the last thing I saw as it got dark was this uh, guy, he was definitely a busboy, just got off of work and he, he, he laid a towel down uh, and he, he like <laughs> stood on it and undressed himself and then he put on a uh, blue gingham dress uh, and a wig with, with pigtails and he had a little picnic basket with a little stuffed dog coming out of it and the kicker was he had a large prosthetic penis like coming out from the bottom sticking out this much from the bottom of the skirt and I said what a beautiful day now we 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 buried Linda two years ago 
she was uh, always afraid of doctors and she never trusted them. And she got uh, colon cancer and spread to her liver. And 11 months after the diagnosis, she died. And when I say we buried her, I mean, we all stood around and we put the urn in the ground. And I put the dirt on and I buried her. And I miss her a lot. And it's not fair that she died as early as she did. But when I tell this story, she's alive again. Because stories are magic. So welcome to the moth at the New York Public Library. Thank you very much. Thank you. One more hand for Maz Swift, who opened up the show. It's absolutely beautiful. We are absolutely honored to be here in celebration of our new book, uh, our new 50 stories uh, by the moth is over there on a table. You can grab one. It's, it's, it was just today on the, the, this week in the New Yorker's approval matrix in the good part of it. Uh, the, um, so you can find it there and in the most literate bathrooms all around New York City. That's where you'll find the moth book. Uh, it's, it's so amazing. We, there's 50 stories in the book. Uh, two of the stories are done by two of our guests that we have telling stories tonight, Andrew Solomon and Carly Johnstone, along with 48 other stories from um, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Gopnik, uh, poker champion Annie Duke, uh, Steve the Cop Osborne, Eddie Gavigan, um, everybody that you love from the moth and you've heard on the on the podcast or, the, or seen at the shows or on the radio show, they're in there, and it's so awesome. The, the, the book translates, man. You can, you can hear these people's voices as you're reading it, and it's absolutely beautiful. So we're here to help celebrate that tonight. So this isn't exactly a regular moth show. We're only going to have, we'll have uh, two stories and maybe a surprise guest later, uh, maybe. Uh, and, uh, but the two things we got to do first, uh, if everybody would just uh, take out your cell phones and wave them around like you're at a Kanye show, just like, just, yeah, just, <laughs> or not. Okay, that's fine. But just turn them off. Uh, make sure it's on off or in airplane mode so there's no signal. Even silent or vibrate is not good enough. We have sensitive microphones and recording equipment, and uh, that will, it'll interfere with uh, the recording. So uh, you don't, these are all stories that could end up, you know, again, on our radio show or the podcast. You don't want to spoil someone's NPR dreams forever. Uh, so it's not your right to do that. All the stories will be uh, 10 minutes long, and Maz is here as the timekeeper. At the 10-minute mark, she's going to make a, a noise that sounds something like this. <laughs> and what that means is, hey, delicate flower, uh, you're doing a great job, uh, but you really need to start wrapping up because, come on. Uh, and... Then, uh, so if there's, if they keep going on and lose their place, uh, it happens, happens to me at least twice a day, uh, Maz will play another noise, uh, note that sounds like this. <laughs> and that one's terrifying. And that says, beautiful butterfly, uh, we love you, we, we really do, but come on. Uh, and, and so then that lets the storyteller know it's time to wrap up. So if you hear Maz playing, uh, she didn't have a bloodless coup. She just, it's all part of the show. Uh, so uh, we have all, we have two stories for you this evening. Uh, and 
in the tradition here with, um, we have, in the tradition of live in the New York Public Library, we have uh, these seven word autobiographies. Uh, so that's how we'll introduce everyone. After the stories, there'll be a discussion here, a conversation with Paul, uh, with Carly and Andrew, with uh, Catherine Burns, our artistic director, and George Dawes Green, our founder. And they'll talk about stories and storytelling and the impact of that and I guess the, how awesome I am. So, uh, and there'll be other stuff that we talk about throughout the night. So, are you ready for some stories? Come on. It's so lackluster. Come on. All right, that's better. All right. So uh, our first storyteller, uh, his seven-word bio uh, is, Glamour needn't be in conflict with kindness. Please welcome, with a rousing just show of love, Andrew Solomon. Come on! My senior year of high school, I decided it was time for things to change. My braces were off. I got contact lenses. My skin started to clear up. And my yearbook quote was, hi-ho, the glamorous life. (laughs) And I needed a summer job. And I applied for several jobs, including a job in the editorial department of the Metropolitan Museum of Art that I didn't think I'd get because I knew there were a vast number of people competing for it. And to my total delight, I did get it. And I thought, my intellect, my intellect is going to change the world and they can tell. (laughs) So I got to my first day there and I went into the office of the woman who had hired me And I noticed that the thank you note I'd sent her after our interview was on her little bulletin board behind her desk. And I said, Polly, that's so touching that you've put up the thank you note that I wrote to you. And she said, you know, there were 200 applicants for this job. And basically what this job involves is filing, proofreading, and Xeroxing. And any idiot could do it. But your thank you note was on my favorite color of blue paper. So I decided that I'd give you the job. (laughs) So indeed, the next few days were taken up with filing and Xeroxing and an occasional little bit of copy editing. And I was given a desk in a room at the back of the editorial department where there were many other people with many other desks. And because of the architecture of that part of the museum, I had a sort of triangular piece of wall space over my desk with a nail sticking out of it. And I thought, I should hang something up there. I should hang up something in a frame. So I got home that night to dinner with my parents, and I said, there's a nail sticking out of the wall right above my desk, and I really should take something in to hang there, something in a frame. Well, in my father's bachelor days, he had been a great fan of an opera singer named Luba Velich, and when he met my mother, he had a photograph of Luba Velich as Tosca that was hanging in his apartment. And when they got married, she said that she did not want photos of other women all over the apartment, (laughs) but that he could hang Luba Velich in the bathroom if he wanted to. So all my life, my parents had a photograph of Luba Velich in their bathroom. And that summer, they were making some repairs in their bathroom. And so my father said, well, you can have Luba if you want to. 
So off I went to the Metropolitan Museum with my picture, and I hung it over my desk, and there it was. And three days later, the chairman of the editorial department, with whom I had until then had no interaction whatsoever, came back into the room to get something, and suddenly this booming voice rang out. When she sang Rosalinda, New York laughed. When she sang Dona Anna, New York cried. And when she sang Salome, New York was speechless. Is that your photograph, he said? And I said, yes, thinking I could carry it off, that I was actually the Lubavitch fan in the family. I said, yes, that is, is my photograph. And he said, you're coming out for a drink with me after work, young man. So off we went for our drink at the Stanhope. And he introduced me in the course of that drink to all of the big, high-powered people in the department. And he said to me, what are you doing in the department anyway? And I said, Xeroxing, <laughs> filing, a little copy editing, some proofreading. He said, that's ridiculous. We'll come up with something else for you to do. I'll know by tomorrow. One of the people he'd introduced me to was the head of classical art, a man named Dietrich von Bottmer. And the next day, I found myself in the elevator with Dietrich von Bottmer. And we had a very pleasant chat, and I thought, these people aren't so scary. There was no reason for me to be so intimidated. And the doors of the elevator opened on the second floor to reveal two women who were knocking on a vase. And one was saying to the other, it's just as I thought. There's nothing in there. <laughs> and Dietrich von Bottmer jumped out of the elevator, and he said, What did you expect to find in my amphora? Geraniums? <laughs> you get out of the museum now, he said. And they turned and ran. I got upstairs, and John O'Neill, the chairman of the editorial department, said, You're going to do photo research for the Costume Institute catalog. And I thought, okay, I've arrived. The Costume Institute was a nexus of glamour, even within the glamorous Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I was all revved up to go down there. So I went down, and I started doing photo research, and I worked with two curators. And it was the 80s, and there was a lot of jewelry all over the place at that point. And one of the curators was wearing this amazing ruby ring, a kind of cocktail ring with this gigantic ruby in it. And she wore it every day. And I'd noticed that. And after about a week, she came in one day, and I noticed she wasn't wearing it. And I said to her, uh, your, your ring? And she said, oh, yes. She said, I lost it. And I said, but that's heartbreaking. I said, where did you lose it? And she said, in a caramel custard. <laughs> and I said, I beg your pardon? And she said, it's happened to me before. Then a few days later, the phone rang, and I answered it, and someone on the phone said that there was one of the curators who owned a necklace that he had and that he wanted to return it, and could I ask her to meet him on the steps of the museum at 5 o'clock? So I told the curator about this, and she said, ah, she said in her amazing French accent, she said, I'll tell you what happened. She said, I was at Newport at a party. I was wearing my yellow dress that's like this and like this with a thing. I was there, and I saw this man, and he was not talking to anyone. And so I thought, well, to begin a conversation, I was wearing that necklace, the one that was my grandmother's, the diamonds. I walked over, and I dropped it into his drink to begin the conversation. <laughs> and then I saw some friends, and I got distracted, and I walked away. And I thought to myself, well, I do not know who he is, but you will find out who I am. So you see, now it has happened. She said, but I am... I am quite embarrassed about the whole thing, so maybe you can come and wait with me on the steps of the museum. So at 5 o'clock, I went with her, 
and we waited on the steps of the museum, and a gigantic car drove up, and a driver helped someone out of the back seat, and he came up, and he presented this diamond necklace in a box, and there was an exchange of pleasantries, and I thought, this is really my life. Um, <laughs> and he got back in the car, and they drove off, and she turned to me, and she said, I tell you what, my dear, I must have been very, very drunk indeed to drop my diamonds in that glass of scotch. <laughs> so then I went back up to the editorial department and they told me, we've decided that you should be the one to edit the introduction to the catalog by Diana Vreeland. Diana Vreeland, who had been the editor of Vogue, who was now the consultative chairman of the Costume Institute, who was the most glamorous person in the most glamorous department in the most glamorous institution. And I was incredibly excited, and I thought they've really realized my editorial voice. My editorial voice can do anything. So off I went for my meeting with Mrs. Vreeland. And I got downstairs. She didn't come in all the time, but she came in that day. And she walked in, and there was someone who answers the telephones who sat behind a big glass desk in the Costume Institute. And Mrs. Vreeland walked in and looked at her and said, so you're the new receptionist. And she said, yes, Mrs. Vreeland, I am, and I'm very excited to be here. And Mrs. Vreeland looked her up and down and said, you'd be a lovely creature if you could grow legs. And then she walked over to where some other curators were looking at images of what was supposed to go in the exhibition. And one of them had just picked up a picture and said, my mother used to have a dress just like this. And Mrs. Vreeland said, that's the most bourgeois outfit in the entire exhibition. And I thought, right, editing, here we go. So off we went into the room and I said, well, Mrs. Vreeland, I said, very nervous. I said, I, I've made some edits and I just want to show you what they are. I've, I've worked from your draft and, and here's the first one. And she looked at it and she said, why did you change that word? And I said, well, Mrs. Vreeland, it's, it's the verb and it doesn't agree with the subject in the sentence. So I was just making it agree. And she said, does it have to agree? <laughs> and I said, it is museum policy that the verb agree with the subject. <laughs> And she said, young man, that seems to me to show an exceptional lack of imagination. <laughs> so by the time we got done, I was virtually in tears, and I went back up with the somewhat edited version of it that I had. And I said, when I got back upstairs, I said, that was hard. I said to the person who sent me down, he said, I know, none of the rest of us could bear to do it, so we sent you. <laughs> well... A few days after that, Mrs. Vreeland and I had managed to hatch some little version of a reasonable relationship. She came in, and the exhibition was almost ready to open, and she walked through the exhibition, and she pointed at each of these mannequins, the exhibition which I thought looked fantastic, and she said, her head has to move to the left, you have to change the hat on that one, this one is awful, it shouldn't be here at all, that one, and she went on and on, and I thought, ah, this impossible old woman is making everyone's lives miserable, but when she was finished, the exhibition looked about a million times better than it had before. And she and I then went upstairs, and we were walking through the great hall of the Metropolitan Museum, and she put one of her small, claw-like hands on my arm, <laughs> and she said to me, young man, stop for a minute. So I stopped, and she said, I want you to look around this room and contemplate the fact that every one of these people went into a store in which other things were available and selected what they're wearing right now.
I look down. I look down at her hand on the sleeve of my blazer, which I believe my mother had selected in a store where other things were available, and hope that I was passing muster. About a week after that, shortly before the exhibition um, it was to open in its final form, she came in one day, and one of the curators had hung over her desk a photo. It's an amazing photo. Some of you may have seen it. It's Richard Avedon's photograph of Nureyev, naked, leaping forward with his arms up in the air. And Mrs. Vreeland walked in and saw it there and said, <coughs> I see you have my photograph up over your desk. And the curator said, your photograph, Mrs. Vreeland? And she said, <coughs> of course. She said, I had it done when I was at Vogue. They thought it was such an extravagance. We had to fly that... Russian boy. We had to fly him in from Paris, but I said to them, you wait and see. This will be the apotheosis of the dance. And indeed it is. And the curator said, well, that's, that's very fascinating. What happened? She said, well, she said, it was, I was with Dickie Avedon, and we went to his studio, which is like a cathedral. And we got ourselves settled in there, and we, I had my assistants, and Dickie had his assistants, and we were all making plans and figuring things out. And then that Russian arrived off of his airplane, and he came in, and he said he needed to warm up. And he began to dance in among us. No music. He just danced right in between everyone. And my dear, I must tell you, it was very strange, but it was rather beautiful. And then I said to Dickie, I said, my goodness, I said, this has to be a private moment. And so we sent all of his assistants out, and we sent all of my assistants out, and it was just Dickie Avedon and me and that Russian, and he went behind the screen to take off his clothes. And what happened, she said, gesturing vertically up from her crotch, she said, you know how it can be with men in the mornings, she said. <laughs> when he came out, it was like that. And we had to wait half an hour for it to go down. <laughs> and I must tell you, my dear, it was very strange, but it was rather beautiful. <laughs> I, had, I had gone from my family, where there was a picture of Lubavitch on the wall, where we had windows that looked out on glamour. I had found the door, and I had finally walked out into glamour itself. It was very strange, and it was very beautiful, except that it was also often very ordinary and quite ugly. It wasn't much of a safe haven, but it felt safe to me even though it was treacherous, because it seemed as though finally I might escape from glasses, from braces, from that tyranny of insecure anxiety that had ruled my adolescence. Thank you. That's Andrew Solomon. Beautiful. <laughs> that was the classiest, most erudite dick joke I've ever heard. <laughs> In my life. Uh, so we're all so much better for having heard that. You know how men are like in the morning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, I, that, it was a beautiful story. It was uh, the, the part of, 
like having an opera singer's photo in your office and being discovered that way is that's Andrew's version of uh, dancing on a giant piano in FAO Schwartz with Robert Loggia. Like it's like it's, get that to a 20 year old reference. Uh, that's what hopped in my head. Uh, that's what happens in there. It's messy. Um, the, the, the idea of glamour, when Andrew walked in, he's got this beautiful window pane suit. He's just, just right. And, and it's one of the, you look at it like, oh, Jesus, I'm, this is all big and tall store. And, and, but like, this is hard to do, man. Like, that should be, you know, some sort of competition to see what you can do a casual male and see what you can put together. Because it's, like that store, I've been shopping there since I was 16. Like, and it's, I can't shop anywhere in New York, but there's one on 23rd Street and one in Queens. And they're the, the two stores I can go to. The rest of them might as well be a joke. And, uh, cause I'm huge. I'm enormous. I'm, I'm bigger than you think I am. It's, it's just, that's another one, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> but a casual male, it's, it's, it's tough cause, it's as if they only have clothes for like fat dentists. Like that's it. Like all the shirts have like elastic on the bottom. It's, it's not, it's not good. So I have to wait for rich fat people to die and then they give their clothes away and then I buy them. So that's a little window into my life. Uh, I just want to remind you guys something we have right now. We're doing a, a membership drive and here just, I just hear me out for a second. Okay. Don't get mad. Uh, we have tote bags. Don't worry. It, it all good. That's, those are the rules with this stuff. Right now we have a matching grant, so all the donations uh, that we get right now for this uh, short period of time are effectively doubled dollar for dollar. So uh, members of the Moth, are there any Moth members here tonight by applause? Very good. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, if you're a member at $125 or above, you get free tickets to our members' main stage show at the Great Hall of Cooper Union. And tonight only, in addition to all those other benefits, which is the tickets, a tote bag, advance notice emails about shows, you'll get a free CD of Moth Stories. Um, so you can uh, take care of that over at the table after the show. Uh, and fun fact, uh, tomorrow afternoon, I'll be in the Moth office calling people to get them to uh, renew their membership. So like maybe if you guys didn't want to, if you want to wait to hear this in the phone, hello? Hey, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that's not bad. So uh, that was beautiful. One more time for Andrew Solomon. All right. Our next storyteller, uh, her seven-word bio is uh, work in progress. Please pardon the dust. Uh, please welcome Carly Johnstone. Come on! And I'm short people. That's okay. All right. Hi. Um, I was seven years old, and my mother was sick. She had what they were calling the gay man's plague at the time, except she wasn't a man, and she wasn't gay. She was a prostitute and an addict. And when she died, those doctor's offices turned into foster homes that didn't want to get too attached. And then child services convinced my mother's family to take me in. They didn't really want to. I was damaged goods. I was violent. I was combative. And on top of that, everyone in my mother's family were tall and thin and pale with light blue or green eyes. And I was and am none of those things. But they took me anyway. And I went from brothel to upper middle class suburbia. 
my family, my mother's family, they didn't talk. There wasn't affection. There wasn't sharing. There was no memories of a mother that I really kind of needed to be humanized. Instead, the answer to the problem, which was me, was therapy. And my first therapist's name was Carol. And I ran away. I got sent to Carol. I got in fights and got you know, sent home in police cars. I went to Carol. And when I hit my teen years and started dating black boys, I definitely went to Carol. And Carol's office, you know, she had a special space for her younger, her younger patients. And it was filled with arts and crafts and endless piles of blank pages. And she would ask me gentle questions and teach me how to play new games. And I would ignore pretty much anything but the most banal inquiries and try to beat her as often as possible. And I loved her. She was gentle and kind and she never pushed me. She became one of my first refuges. But then as I was about to start high school, my grandparents were ready to retire. And they were ready to make the great migration from New Jersey to Florida. And they packed us up and they moved us down. And we had never really gotten along. Um, but between the move and the start of school, it just got worse. And two months in, um, after I had started high school, my grandmother made the unfortunate discovery of my journal which detailed my sexual escapades at the time, which included enough women that it just sent her over the edge. And she compared me to my mother, of course, but also to various animals in heat, which was pretty imaginative for her. <laughs> and, uh, and I ran, and I ended up in a runaway shelter downtown. And the shelter brought my grandparents in for a meeting, and they advocated counseling and group therapy and family contracts. And my grandmother's answer to that was, I increased her blood pressure and was a risk to her health and she would prefer placement options over compromise. Thank you. And uh, the shelter was forced to give them a list and they made a choice pretty quickly. They chose the McGregor Baptist Children's Home. And they were hoping that it would provide the moral compass and discipline I was obviously lacking. You know. We had made it five years, my grandparents and I, but it had never been a love story. They were not equipped to raise a kid that never stopped looking for something to fight, and I always needed something more than what they could give. And in the span of three weeks, I went from retirement community, shelter, children's home. And the children's home was a reality check. It held 13 kids at any given time and had a married couple that lived on campus as our surrogate parents and a team of counselors and social workers that were working through their internships to you know, keep us delinquents in line. And it was cold and you know, much like had all the rules of a juvenile detention center, except there weren't any bars, there were just locks on the outside of the window. And a few days after I got there, they had a special welcoming event. They had gone through all of my things and confiscated anything that they felt was inappropriate or sacrilegious. And they found enough. And they started a fire in the yard. And all of it, my Hunter S. Thompson books, my Nirvana and Bill Hicks CDs, all of my inappropriate clothing, all of it, it went in the fire. And they gave me a Bible instead. And just like that, they gave me the perfect target to fight against. And I, am, <laughs> I immediately started instigating trouble and you know, bringing in contraband and smoking cigarettes and stealing bikes at night and exploring the city and learning how to sew better to fix all of my clothes. 
And, uh, you know, the home had one more weapon to, to deal with me, and that was their own form of therapy. I had to do two mandatory meetings a week, one with a group of my peers and a second one that was one-on-one with my therapist. But, you know, considering my antics, they decided to up that and make me go a lot more often. Um, and for the purposes of this story, I'm going to call my, my second therapist Carter, simply because I really like that name. And Carter, he was like a good old boy. He had one of these big booming voices and gigantic ugly belt buckles and huge cowboy boots that he was always swinging on top of the desk, making some horrible point, and he always had a point. You know, he was loud and confrontational, and I just, I never liked him. But after about a month of having to deal with me being as obnoxious as possible um, in these you know, increased sessions, he decided I had to start going to Al-Anon. And if you don't know what it is, Al-Anon is like AA, but for children of addicts. And so he picked me up, and he brought me to this meeting house. And you know, I didn't have much choice. I was pretty surly about the whole thing. And, but, you know, he walks me in, and he, he walks me right past the smaller room that's for Al-Anon and has all of these kind of sad teens with their little sad stories and brings me right to this big, the big room with the AA meeting. And there are a lot of guys on the edge of it across the walls and in the corners kind of hunched over like they don't want to be seen. But there were more people acting like this was the social event of the season and greeting Carter like they had known him for years. And this... This guy comes up to him and gives Carter a hug like Carter is his own personal lifeline, and he introduces us, and I find out that Carter is his sponsor. And to be a sponsor in AA, you need to have first been an addict. And that meant that Carter was an addict. And I hated addicts. I hated everything they stood for. And before I could yell my questions at him, before I could get anything in, the stories began because this meeting was special. It was an open meeting where all of these addicts got to share their stories. And if I had had any expectations about that meeting and those stories, it would have been about tears and renunciation of past and present sins. What I, not, I would never have expected, what I never would have guessed was the laughter. There was shared joy laughter, and deep, dark, bottom-of-the-pit laughter, the kind that mixes up tears and absurdity. And there were plenty of the other stories about death and betrayal and loss, but there was still laughter through it. And I had never heard adults tell stories like this. I didn't even know that they could. And I had come here expecting to suffer through yet another requirement, And by the end, I found myself laughing, too. And it was like like that laughter got to me and made me have to hear them, made me listen to their stories. And I heard my own story in there, and I heard my mother's, and I realized it was probably one of the first times I had smiled when I thought of her in years. And Carter brought me home, and... um, and I, but I realized that uh, this was a turning point for he and I because the home would not have okayed him bringing me to the adult meeting. And I still to this day don't know if they ever knew he was an addict. He had changed the balance of power between us. He had given me a choice and it was 
one of the first choices I had had been given in my life in a long time. And I chose to keep his secret. And I also decided that maybe I should start trying to work at this whole therapy thing. And so Carter started giving me harder assignments, like writing, questions, like writing letters to my family, both alive and dead, and making peace with people instead of just being the crap out of them whenever I had a problem. But worst of all, he kind of forced me to deal with my feelings, and that was never a comfortable place for me. And then Christmas rolled around, and the home was hosting a gigantic event for our sponsors. You see, us kids in the home, we were the names on the stars that decorated the tree in the church lobby. And on the back were the suggested gifts that we might like. And I don't think that any one of us got the gifts that we asked for, but we still had to attend. And not, not just attend, we had to put on a show. We had to put on a play celebrating both our deep and abiding love of God and our appreciation for all of the haves that were willing to give to us have-nots. Oh, and model those ugly clothes while we did it. And um, Christmas was never the best time of year for me, but this time I, I just I couldn't swallow it. I couldn't do it. And I started denouncing everything involved, everything godly, everything holiday-related, and starting identifying all of our sponsors by their horrible gifts, like Scratchy Sweater Lady and Precious Moments Bible Crone. But the home, surprisingly, did not feel that I was as pithy as I thought I was, and they sent me right to Carter. And Carter sat me down um, and immediately gave me a wrapped gift. And I opened it, and it was a piggy bank, but it was in the shape of a toilet bowl. And I had written pity potty on the back of it in his own hand. And before I could yell at him and give him a clever nickname, he made his point which was that he was on salary. And if I worked or not with him, if I tried, if I wanted to get better, it didn't matter to him, he was still going to get paid. And if I was going to have a pity party every single time something sucked in my life, that it at least should be profitable for somebody. <laughs> or as an alternate, that I could consider a simple tithing to him for the time he had to suffer in my company. And he stopped, and I guess he expected me to finally yell at him, but in that moment, I kind of realized it was actually the best gift I had gotten that year. And that, um, you know, and I, and I ended up not yelling at him, but I did tell him that I wanted out. This life wasn't fair, and I wanted to get out. And he told me that fair is a delusional concept that people use to make themselves feel better about their lives. And what I really needed to ask myself was what was I going to do about it? And so almost as a dare, I asked him to help me make a plan, help me plan a way to get out of here. And he did. He let me in on a little secret. The only thing legally keeping me there was my mandatory schooling. And if I could graduate early, I could be emancipated. And so that's what I did. I managed to graduate high school two years early. And the home had to emancipate me. And my life was suddenly and for the first time mine. 
And I still didn't know, um, I still wasn't sure about a lot of things, but um, I was sure about Carter and he had kept my, my pity potty in his office until then. And, but before I left, he brought me out for ice cream and he gave it back to me and he contributed a dollar to the pity pot fund. And I still didn't know if I liked Carter, but he had laid the breadcrumbs for me to find my own freedom. And he was never the soft, quiet refuge that I thought I needed. But now I was 15 and I was free and I was ready to start my own story. And he had finally given me something to fight for instead of against. Thank you. That's Carly Johnstone. Very beautiful. The stories are the best, man, because, you know, inside we all have all these experiences that are these things that happen to us that are, tend to be ugly because that's life. There's, a, you know, half of it is bad. That's the, the black and white cookie of life. And, uh, like, you could, you could let those things just fester in the dark. And, and it's like a little kid looking at a bunch of clothes on a, on a coat rack. It looks frightening. But if you turn the light on, you see it's just a bunch of clothes on a coat rack. So if you shine a light on your stuff... You see what it is, and you start to own it, and it doesn't own you. It's so beautiful. Carly, thank you so much. Give her another round of applause. <laughs> powerful. That's powerful stuff. Um, so we are just, we're making the transition now from uh, storytelling to panel discussion. Oh, no, I'm not supposed to call it a panel. <laughs> panel. <laughs> you give somebody from New Jersey power and then it goes to their head uh, I can't help it um, so that's just that's what that is um, and Carly's getting mic'd up now But so did you how, are you enjoying yourself so far you lovely people you uh, I'm enjoying you as well this is a really this is a beautiful room it's, it's really it's really nice I've played some crappy ones in my life a lot of basements. Uh, that's good being under the ground. Uh, all right. <laughs> now we uh, will begin. Uh, I want to reintroduce some people and introduce some other people. And uh, we, like I said before, we have these seven-word bios, so we're going to use those. So uh, it's my honor first to reintroduce the impresario of Live at the New York Public Library. Uh, his seven-word uh, autobiography is Mother Always Said two ears, one mouth. Paul Holden Graber. We also have uh, author and founder of The Moth. His seven-word bio is What a Liar, and That's the Truth, George Dawes Green. Welcome back. You loved them before, and you'll love them again. Andrew Solomon. We have our uh, artistic director of The Moth uh, and uh, mother of Harry. Uh, her seven-word bio, Alabama Roots, New York Branches and Leaves, Catherine Burns. And again, one more round of applause for Carly Johnstone. I leave you in the capable hands of Paul. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much. No, pa panel is a terrible word. I mean, really, I mean, I, I, I feel like I should never give power to people in New Jersey. Um, <laughs> but I'll give all of you the power to talk about stories, to talk about the power of stories, to talk about the beginning, how you started, George. How did this wonderful, crazy idea begin? Where it, did it come from? It, it, I will let you talk. <laughs> Thank you. I don't mind, Paul. You can go on forever. Uh, it started I, in... I, I definitely can. Sure. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. That'd be fine. I started in uh, 1997 um, with Peggy Vale. Peggy, you out there? There you are. And a bunch of other people. I don't know if we've got any of the... Do we have any of the originals? Gosh, it's just us. Everybody here is. We were there in a, in a loft, in my loft, and I had decided to, to, to try the art of raconteuring um, in New York City because I had done it years and years before in St. Simons Island, Georgia. I used to go over to my friend Wanda Bullard's house and we would sit on her porch and drink lots and lots of bourbon and get really, really drunk and just tell stories all night long. I was tempted to have some on stage. I should If have. you had, I, I, would, I, I would be a much better raconteur right now. <laughs> I, would be, I would be riveting. We used to listen. The, the guy that I remember was Dayton Malone, who told, who was an old cracker from, from middle Georgia, who told the story of how he'd lost 6,000 chickens. And he just... He just said that he just, you know, he'd go on, he got, well, I got drunk, I got probably a little, I had too much bourbon, and I woke up, and I knew something was wrong, and I went out, and I looked, and I saw a little white smear of these gals way in the distance, and I realized I'd left the barn door open. And he didn't try in any way to say, oh, you know, he didn't try to make excuses. He just said, I just fucked up. <laughs> and there was something about, I just thought this was so beautiful, that there was a certain hour of the night when people could just be completely vulnerable and open. And so, so what you're trying to reproduce So I was trying to reproduce that. So you're trying to reproduce here that fucked up moment that at night. That's it. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I, I wanted to say that word. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And you do it well, <laughs> because that's because that's the a great raconteur admits right off that he's fucked up. We have problems sometimes. Some 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 of our celebrities are great, but sometimes we have celebrities who come on and they just want to tell a story okay, about tell me, how tell they me. went oh, into a. Tell me. Yeah. Tell so me. <laughs> tell me you'll, who they are. You'll appreciate yeah. this. They want to tell a story of how they went into some situation and everybody was fucked up, but they prevailed. And the great raconteur tells the story the opposite. The great raconteur says, I went into a situation and everybody was actually kind of sweet and good, but I was fucked up in the head. And once you admit that, once you say, I'm a clown, you just admit to everybody, I'm a clown, then the audience immediately Loves you. Sometimes. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. It, it's a little tougher than that. But. In, in, in the introduction uh, to the book that I highly recommend everybody gets, um, you 
quote a line that I love of George Orwell, where you say, where Orwell says, autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. A man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying, since any life, when viewed from the inside, is simply a series of defeats. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and beautifully read, Paul. I wish I had written it. How did, how did, how did you hear of the moth? Um, I've been listening to the moth for years, and um, and one of those moments, like those epiphany moments, like everything came together, and I called the pitch line, and that's how I ended up on here. You you called what did you call? The moth pitch line. You can call and leave like an atrocious two-minute message about your <laughs> about your story, and then panic as soon as you hang up, and then sometimes they call you back. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you pitch the story to them online? Yeah, yeah. Oh, on the phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How does that work, Catherine? Well, yeah, we have this pitch line, and at this point, thousands of people have called. And you know, at first we did it, you know, I think we got the grant to do it, and we're like, well, that sounds very nice. And then the phone calls started coming in, and they were just the most unbelievable people. And like Carly was one of them, and we actually have somebody who sits and listens to all of these phone messages. And um, listening, like every single one is heard. And then if there's some grain of something there, like there was with Carly, we phone them back and get them on the phone and try to see if they might could come tell it. And it's been pretty spectacular. And it's a pitch line there so that, the phone line there so that in some way everybody has a chance. That's exactly right. Like it's partly to try to find the people who might not come to us. I mean, it's just also a way for people all across the country. It's just so simple to just dial your phone, you're pulled over on the side and just leave a little bit of a message. It's really easy. And so it's a way for people to reach out to us in a way that's very simple. <laughs> and so people do it. And it's just been, I mean, you know, of course, like for every Carly, I will admit that there are probably like 40 weird drunken fat boy stories, <laughs> let's be honest. But it's worth sifting through all of that. <laughs> you know, um, I, I often, uh, quote this line of Pierre Macorlan, a, a French writer from the turn of the 19th to 20th century, who said that improvisation is something you prepare. Exactly. I love that sound, by yeah. the way. <laughs> I wonder, and you were shaking your head. Well, absolutely, at the moth. I mean, people work very hard on their stories. I mean, this, it's, com it's a complicated mix because the stories aren't memorized. Like, neither of these guys memorize their story. But you didn't memorize it. No. But so, how did you, <laughs> so how did you remember it, Andrew? I have an unbelievably terrible memory, and my fear whenever I do a story is of forgetting some part of it. The idea that kind of gets me through is that each part of it flows in some reasonably natural way from the part before, so each of them reminds me of the next one. There's also a certain amount of repeating it, and backstage, am I allowed to say, so Carly and I were both sitting there with our notes saying, okay, I have to remember that part comes after that part, I have to remember that part comes after yeah, that I, part. Yeah, I, I witnessed that. There's a lot that. of holding on to it. I, I would probably memorize my stories if I could, but it's completely <laughs> outside my skill set, so I have to go with just remembering sort of vaguely but then it's really nice because you start to tell the story and it changes as you're telling it. And little bits come in that you had never planned and it grows. 
And I find that's the thing that works best, is when it really is a storytelling, and there's really an organic process going on. It, it's emerging in response to the audience. Why, why don't you want your storytellers to memorize Because it story. becomes very stale. They get what we like to call the moth head in the desk drawer syndrome, <laughs> where they're up there and you can just see on their faces, because you have some people who will just sneak away and try to memorize their story, and you see them trying to remember the next line on the page instead of reaching out and connecting with the audience. And we, what, the ideal thing is we want them to prepare enough that they know their story very well, and that gives them the confidence to go up there and actually sort of interact with the audience in a way. I mean, like, you feel that energy when these guys are on stage. And so it takes a certain amount of pre preparation to be free in that way. Um, but also, like, there's also the reality that in 10 minutes, you know, that's not a lot of time. So it's, it's like very, that balance. It's very tough, you know, It's very to have, tough. You know, that, that line which I attribute to Pascal, but Americans mm -hmm. say it's Mark Twain, if I had had more time, I would have made it shorter. Right. It's exactly. not easy. It's not easy. So the, I think the best moth stories dance on that line of being prepared, but not so prepared that you can't go, go out there and really sink into it in an organic way and just let it fly when you're on stage. Carly, do you, do you regret having called that line now that you are in front of <laughs> <laughs> I, I did for a few minutes after. I called my wife and completely panicked that I had done it. I was like, oh my god, it's so horrible. Someone's going to hear this and it's so bad. Um, but in, in all honesty, it's been an amazing, amazing experience. In, in what way? In what way is the telling of a story with the panic I witnessed before? <laughs> Andrew too, it's true. Amazing. Um, what is amazing about it? I don't I know. Want to I've always viewed that stories are kind of our living history, right? So like everybody in our life, everyone around us kind of shares a little piece of us and they, they remember us, you know, and, and those stories make us who we are, and, and I don't know, I've, I've always loved stories, whether they're in books, or I get to hear them, or I get to listen to them, I just, you know, they, get, they allow you to touch something outside of your own life. Do they make things better, more bearable? <laughs> I guess it's always nice to uh, hear someone else feels that way. <laughs> You're answering the question in a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> so not, not really. No, I think that's, that's part of it. I think it's also, an, you know, one, it lets us touch parts of us or, or empathize with something we never would have experienced otherwise. But also, um, it's an escape too, you know? It's like a little window that you can look outside of and it's outside of what you're experiencing. I think almost because it's not my life it's beautiful and, and something that I want. Andrew, you, you have spent the last 15 years or so speaking to people about stories that they wish they could have escaped from. Yes. I think that we live in a time in which there is a kind of tyranny of facts and numbers. The news, when you read it, tends to consist of a compendium of facts or else some of the time a compendium of outspoken opinions that get wedged in between the facts. But I don't think that actually human experience unfolds in facts. I think it unfolds in narratives, and that the loss of the narrative element in our experience of our own lives, in our experience of what's happening in the world, even in our experience of history, is very distorting. And sometimes people say, but was the story completely accurate? 
Well, it was largely accurate, perhaps, or perhaps it wasn't so largely accurate, but its trajectory, the emotion that was contained in it, the urgency that was inscribed in it, those things were accurate. And sometimes I think that conveys a great deal more than someone getting it right, whether there were 37 or 39 of something someplace. And so I love stories, and I love the stories that I put together in my book, which was about how families responded to these various kinds of challenging children. I loved hearing the stories of those families. I tried to fact check. I tried to make sure what I was writing was accurate. I tried to make sure people were being straight with me. But I felt like in telling what their stories were, I said more about what it means to be a parent or to be a human being than I could have done in a, with a more sort of fact-based operation. Um, when, when I spoke to you just about a year ago about uh, Far From the Tree, which for all of you who haven't read uh, these extraordinary 900 pages. I cannot encourage you enough to, to read it. It's one of the few books that I, I would say at this stage in my life has actually changed it. You. Um, you had a different seven words, and I really appreciate the fact that you tried again with glamour needn't be in conflict with kindness. You said good listeners, more interesting, than good talkers, which to some extent made me think of my mother who said two ears, one mouth when I was 11 years old because I wasn't listening, I'm sure. So tell me something about the power of listening and then I'd like to ask you the same question, George, and you, Catherine, the same, same question, the power of listening because as you can tell, I'm talking a lot. Go ahead. <laughs> People asked me over and over again how I got the people in my book to open up and tell their stories so vividly and so coherently. The first thing to say is that it wasn't always so coherent. That's the job of the writer, to sort through it and bring out of that coherence. Editor. Yes, exactly. But I did think that an awful lot of people wanted to tell their stories because they said over and over again, I felt so alone in the experiences that I'd had. And I thought that if telling my story could help someone else to feel less alone, then it would be well worth doing. But I also found that people really wanted to be able to construct a coherent narrative out of their experience. It gave them a feeling of ownership of it. It gave them a sense that the dark parts were actually balanced by whatever moments of light there were. There was an urgency to that process for the people who were talking to me. And I found that if I sat and listened, it would be possible to get them to tell their stories on and on. People would say to me, I'm not sure about telling you the story, and then we'd record 22 hours of interviews. And I would think, well, I guess you did want to tell that story after all. Um, it was a very intense process, but it was a very moving process, and stories are much more intimate than facts. The facts they could tell me by email, the facts they could tell me uh, in any of a variety of ways, the facts they had often written down. It was when we had been sitting together for a long time and they began talking about what their emotional trajectory had been, what the medical trajectory perhaps had been, what the political trajectory, they would start telling me all of these things and then suddenly they were talking about themselves and how they had grown or changed or been altered or transformed. And that was the thing that was so moving to me. And my mother, like yours actually, she used to say, um, a good listener is always more interesting than a good talker. And she also used to say, you should be able to make conversation with a brick wall. And I think <laughs> those two pieces of social information ended up being the basis for my whole career. <laughs> I'll drink to my mother. Um, 
to your mother? Um, to our mothers. There's something here about listening and something here about the vulnerability. Vulnerability, which, you know, I, I looked up the word, as is my want, yesterday, and it, it has a, as an origin the notion of scar and wound. And some way of that opening up. Catherine. Absolutely. I mean, vulnerability, we always say, is the number one mark of a great storyteller. Because it's in that vulnerability that we're able to connect with other people. Like one of the, my favorite stories in the book is told by Mike Massimino. He's an astronaut. And he gets to space. He's been sent expense, millions of dollars of expense to the taxpayers. And he's up there. And he's literally spent three years preparing for this mission, which is to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. And when he gets there, he can't get the back off the telescope because he can't get the screw out. And like very few of us in this room, I think, will ever travel to outer space. But who can't relate to spending three years preparing for a mission only to be foiled by a stripped screw? And so that is, it's, just like, it's like when George talks about when you walk out when you're willing to play the clown. I mean, that is what makes it. But you know, as far as listening, I do. I get a little preachy about this, but I do think that as a culture, we have sort of forgotten how to listen. And since we're talking about mamas, I'll talk my mama. Um, one of my first memories as a child is I was four years old, and there was like th this nice lady novelist, Mama said, had come to do research in my hometown. And so and mama, one of my first memories is being four years old, sitting down for pimento cheese sandwiches with my mother and Harper Lee, and which at the time I was four, like fine, so cut to Ten years later, I'm 14, I'm reading to, till, to Kill a Mockingbird in school, and all of a sudden, I realized that Harper Lee was at her house, and I was completely freaked out by my mother, like, by her kindness, yes, but also by her audacity. I was like, Mama, you just invited Harper Lee over for lunch? Like, she had just won the Pulitzer Prize. And Mama was like, well, I don't know about that, but, you know, she, she was new in town, and you got to get to know your neighbors, because... You never know what's been going on with the person in line behind you at the supermarket. And there's something about that that I think is fundamental to what we're trying to do with the moth. Something that, yes, go. I'm just going to break in and say that <laughs> I was in the same moment when the astronaut told his story about fixing the Hubble Space Telescope. And I said to him, that is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. He described moving hand over hand, jumping across bits of space, so on and so forth. I said, I don't know how anyone could ever do anything that terrifying. And he pointed to the stage we were about to get on and said, less scary than this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we had a story we had. The Wa power of empathy. Yes. Yeah. Warren MacDonald, who had uh, yeah. climbed Mount... Kilimanjaro with uh, no legs and had lived through some of the most terrifying experiences. Just the experience of how he had lost his legs was an incredibly terrifying thing. And I came to him at um, Cooper Union after he had told his story and said, you know, that it was an amazing thing. And he kind of pulled me down close and said, almost the same thing. He said, this, this was the scariest thing I've ever done. Mm. And it's true. But, 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 I mean, the moth yeah. is, a, is it's, it's an incredibly scary thing because there's no, you have, you don't have an interlocutor like we have. You don't have any... Oh, I, I can become scary. <laughs> 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 
but you have 12 minutes that you have to stand up there and you're just completely on your own and it's really, really terrifying. But there's also a sense, and I think this is the great thing about moth audiences and when you ask about listening. Moth, there is something vibrant about the communication of the storytellers, particularly at, at the moth. There's just sort of, it's a living organism. I mean, you, and you, it's back and forth and you can feel it. And particularly when we have our slams with all these, you know, 20 year old kids coming and screaming um, their lungs out like, like it's some kind of a rock concert. It's, there's this great, beautiful energy so that when you're done, you just feel like you've accomplished, you know, like you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, you, you, you feel in the urgency of storytelling. You feel that storytelling is an art. Not everybody feels that. No, Garrison Keillor said <laughs> recently, he was um, hosting one of our shows, and he said, no, I, do, I, th I think storytelling is, you know, importantly not an art. But I think it's an art, and I think but that... What, what, but just a yes. minute. Yes. Just a minute. You want to have more from Garrison? No, I want to. I want to gonna, actually take serious. I want to actually take. Yes. Could you, for a moment, take his side of the argument? Take his side that it's not an art. Yes. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do you, understand. You know that, that Robert Frost line that a liberal is someone who never takes his own side <laughs> in an argument. So, so try for a moment. I will try. indeed. No, I think what he was saying is that there's a great beauty to, to just simply sharing stories without this idea that it, you know, because a lot of times when we say art, we're talking about something that there's a wall, there's going to be a wall between the performer and the audience. And what I'm trying to talk about is an art where that wall is broken down. You know, it is, we, what, what we've been doing with the moth, I think, is continuing on this path of democratization and maybe making things more simple and more personal and more emotional. And this has actually been going on now for centuries. But I was amazed to find when I started The Moth that nobody was bringing up storytellers and putting them in front of an audience and saying, tell your personal non-memorized anecdote as though it's an art. And as soon as that happened, people just responded you know, everywhere. Well, Carly, you, you responded. <laughs> uh, you, you responded, and I'm, I'm wondering if what George is saying about the wall, I, I have my doubts about it, but I'm, I'm wondering whether you, you feel, I saw those eyebrows going up, I wonder <laughs> if, if you feel the wall has somehow been broken down because you were able to tell a story. Um, so, when you're saying that if it was an art or not, and I, I, one, I agree with you, I think that it really is an art, and being involved with the moth. So, when I came, my first story, it was like 30 minutes long. And um, the producer I had, her, name, her name's Jen Hickson, she's absolutely amazing. And, um, and she kind of, the art was trying to find what, what, the, what the actual point was. Right? So, like, what is your story? You should say, like, in one sentence, make it, like, what are you trying to get at? And, it, you know, it shrunk down. And I did this story at Gramercy Park, and it was incredibly overwhelming and, and so terrifying. And, um, the and sto I... The story or the telling of it? 
both, <laughs> both were. It was a very personal story. It's, it's the one that's in, this, in the book. And, um, and, I, and I had told it um, for my own self, you know, for my family, you know, because um, I wanted them to have this story out in the world. I wanted, you know, it's hard to, to sit across from somebody at the kitchen table and be like, and get into this deep, depthful reason for being sometimes. And I guess that was my stage. But afterwards, um, I had all of these, these people come up to me and tell me their stories. All of these people came and hugged me and cried and, you know, told me, um, because my first story was, was about um, an adoption of my first son, my first child. And um, all of these women came up to me with their stories of lost children and um, things that had gone wrong in their own history. And the, the girl who was playing viola that night told me that she didn't play me off because she had found out that her mother had a child that she gave up for adoption and she just couldn't do it. And um, I hadn't expected that. Like, I hadn't been prepared for my story to mean that to other people, to strangers that I didn't know. Um, and it, that was life-changing, you know, for me. I, you know, I, I think storytelling is an art. It's, it's an amazing art. Part of how, oh, sorry. I had nothing. <laughs> I mean, part of how I think that wall breaks down is that the storytellers are coming up from the community. I mean, the moth, there's not really a green room. People, the storytellers sit in the audience, and that's really deliberate. The idea is that these are stories from your own community. It's not just a show with famous comedians. I mean, we occasionally have a famous comedian, but it's a show that part of the point of the pitch line is that Carly one day is sitting at home listening to the radio, and the next minute, she's on stage at the Players Club telling a story. And that is so the idea of what we're trying to do. And it's always true stories. Yes. Which is very, to the best of very, our very well, You don't have the New Yorker's fact check department working for us. <laughs> but <laughs> to the best that we can do, yes. There's a there's a go ahead. No, I was just going to say, also, I've worked with Catherine on all except, I think, my first story, which yeah. was a long time ago, but all the stories I've done since. And there is an art to storytelling, and even if you think you're pretty good at it, there's a great deal that gets learned in the rehearsal process of interacting, having people listen to the story, having people say, but your, your voice gets lost here, or that part's very funny, but it doesn't connect well to that other part, or the conversation around it is very rich and very rewarding. So even though the story isn't memorized, and even though you perhaps forget some of the direction when you get there, the directing has been fantastic, and, and She's helped no, me a lot in making the stories work <laughs> in a big way. And in, in, in your own work, uh, the stories you have people tell, they feel in some way that by telling them to you, you're a witness to their pain. Yes. And that pain as delivered in the form of a book or in the form of a story told, is somehow alleviated. Yes. Is that true? I think it is true. I think, um, I mean, when I'm telling other people's stories, yes. which is different from telling my own, um, there's a sense that it alleviates pain. In telling one's own story, one has to make sure that one is not engaged in a sort of false form of therapy in which this is a room of 700 psychoanalysts I, who I, are all I, I, bearing I, that. I, I feel very fortunate <laughs> to have that. Yeah. Um, 
But you I know, do think that telling stories does give you, it gives you a feeling of, it gives, I think, for me, above all, a sort of strange feeling of control, um, that you take a chaotic set of experiences and you bring some kind of order out of them. And that's a very reassuring experience. You know, there's a line uh, uh, that I'm sure everybody knows here of Joan Didion, but I'd love you to respond to. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Yeah, and we also, we, I think we live to tell stories. You know, storytelling is so buried in our DNA. It's the thing that probably defines this particular branch of the primate line, is that we are uh, narrative creatures and such a huge part of our brain um, is wrapped up in the ability to assemble the little bits, the little units of information that we have into stories that we then bind together with kind of an emotional gel, which is, I suppose, we do it because we can then remember these clusters of information. No, I mean, nobody do really... Do we remember the story more we, than, than, than actually what... I mean, does the story become so gelled that in a way the experience is changed because of the telling of the story. You want to say something? I do. Yeah. I will tell you that actually that can, I think that does happen when people t tell the same stories again and again, like especially the moth, people sometimes tell them once in New York, they might go tell it in Portland. And one of the exercises we sometimes have the storyteller do is to sit and tell us 10 things that happened that day that have never been in the story. Because the process of that kind of forces you to remember viscerally being there again and can sort of reconnect you into what happened. Because that is one of the fears, is that like you get so locked into the way you tell the story that the reality of it can actually get a little bit lost in it. So I think it's really interesting that you bring that up. How, how does Galileo fit into all of this? <laughs> Galileo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Saved by mass. <laughs> I don't know why people are applauding, but wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was a great moment that I didn't have to tell the Galileo connection. Well, the Galileo connection is simply that this, is, this was uh, Vincenzo Galilei, who was Galileo's father, was a great um, music theorist and actually the man who invented um, monody. And so you'd had, you know, for centuries this polyphonic, uh, very religious music, very authoritative. And then he develops um, the monody and, and, and the aria for opera. And, and, and now you have people in Italy beginning to sing these songs which are very personal, very emotional. And it starts a revolution, you know, this great Renaissance revolution. You know, within 30 years, Shakespeare is writing his incredibly beautiful personal um, moments, which hadn't been done before. And the relationship between Galileo and, and the moth is, is... that we also, here we are, continuing that same line. You know, 500 of, years later, we're being, we're, we're being very personal. Confessional. And, 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 and perhaps you could say confessional. I mean, I don't, I don't love that word, but, but... I didn't think you would, but, but, but there is... But I will confess, no, very, very emotional. And that response that audiences are having when kids come and watch the moth and come back and you know, you know, all over the country, all over the world now we have, 
We have, we have these nights that are being crowded by kids. And what is it that they're seeing? They're just seeing the most essential personal connection that they can find in the world. The opposite of what they're getting from the internet. And it's kind of Partly because we're looking thing. at each other. Yeah. Also, yeah. That is that's a, the, that's that is the a other surprise. That we is can, surprise. We can look at each other, and, and it can go can, back and forth. And we can see reactions. I mean, I think just the notion that I'm looking into your eyes and you're looking into mine. Well, now this is. I, this I actually. <laughs> <laughs> I actually. This has taken a step it, beyond it, what I expected, talk, Paul. We, well, <laughs> you know, I I wanted to have a few witnesses and. Um, in, in closing, Catherine, there's a line you love which you quoted to me. I asked you all for lines about storytelling that you love. There was one uh, that, that uh, Andrew and I could have br brought up. Do you, do you remember it by heart? Uh, yes, it was Isaac Dinesen. It is to the storyteller a thing of wonder to find that his story is true. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, do, you, do you have one by any chance? I, I, I have the line of Nathaniel Hawthorne who said, be true, be true, be true, share freely with the world, if not your worst, at least some trait whereby the worst may be inferred. Mm, not bad. No, I have nothing no, compared to um, um, Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I have one that I prepared for you tonight uh, of oh, Chekhov, there would be more sincerity and heart in human relations, more silence and simplicity in our interactions. Be rude when you're angry, laugh when something is funny, and answer when you're asked. And here is my uh, quotation to you, back to you, uh, Catherine, of Anais Nin, which I loved. Stories are the only enchantment possible for when we begin to see our suffering as a story, we are saved. Say something about that. Well, I mean, I think it gets to the essence of what is to me so special about the moth when it works, which is like we've talked about being a, playing the clown, about vulnerability. The, the, when you get up, you know, the most horrible things can happen to you. But if you can get up and sort of turn it into a story to find some meaning in it for yourself, then you can begin to actually get past it. Um, one of our great raconteurs, a man named Mar Martin Dockery, he has this thing he likes to say. He says, you either, had a good you either have a good time or you have a good story. <laughs> I think that's a, good, that's, a that, good that's a very good place that's to good yes. stop. Carly, thank you. Catherine, Welcome. thank you. Andrew, thank you. George. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to bring Math Swift up again. Her seven words are, I want to go back to Africa. And now it is my great pleasure to announce the funniest man on, the on our board of trustees here at the library. Now, that may not be saying a lot, but still. <laughs> His seven words are resident, out-of-towner, competent, parallel parker, <laughs> Calvin, known as Bud Trillin. <laughs> Thank you.
I live in Greenwich Village, which I usually describe as a neighborhood where people from the suburbs come on Saturday night to test their car alarms. Uh, uh, some years ago, I fell into the habit of taking out-of-town guests for a walk in lower Manhattan. We start out of my house, go through the Italian South Village, through Soho, spend an awkward two or three blocks in the machine tool district, then uh, <laughs> Little Italy, and then Chinatown, where after a dim sum lunch, the guest was permitted to play tic-tac-toe with a chicken. <laughs> this was a real chicken in an amusement arcade on Mott Street. I lived in a glass cage. And the glass cage was outfitted with those backlit letters that you're familiar with if you wasted your childhood playing pinball. Um, on the on the cage were words like bird's turn, your turn. <laughs> and there were buttons you could push to put your X's where you wanted them. When you did that, the chicken would go behind what was called the thinking booth <laughs> and peck its answers. Um, and if you beat the chicken, got a large bag of fortune cookies <laughs> worth probably 35 or 40 cents <laughs> and it only cost 50 cents to play. <laughs> but the chicken was very good at tic-tac-toe. <laughs> Everybody I took down there looked over the situation and said the same thing. The chicken gets to go first. <laughs> and I would say, but he's a chicken. Uh, you're a human being. Surely there should be some advantage to that. And then many of them, not all of them, but a distressingly high number of them, would say, the chicken plays every day. Uh, I haven't played since I was a kid. They were wise to get their excuses in at the beginning of the game because none of them ever beat the chicken. Chicken was very good at tic-tac-toe. There were different explanations to uh, explain why this was true. Some people thought a computer was involved. Some people thought it was a very intelligent chicken. <laughs> In my house, it was common to refer to somebody we'd met who seemed particularly clever by saying, she's smart as a Chinatown chicken. Even before I started taking people down there, the writer Roy Blunt Jr. told me that from what he had heard once, the chicken had been trained by former graduate students of B.F. Skinner. 
as you know, the legendary behavioral psychologist. I always hoped this was true, since it was a refutation of the false teaching that graduate work is of no value in the everyday world. <laughs> it turns out that Roy had been accurately informed. A former graduate student of B.F. Skinner had gone with her husband to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and started training animals, including chickens who could play tic-tac-toe. In fact, it, it turned Hot Springs, Arkansas into the small animal training capital of the world. It also happens to be Bill Clinton's hometown. As far as I know, those facts are unrelated. But there is sort of a cottage industry of animal training in Hot Springs. I once interviewed a man who ran a place called Educated Animals, the former IQ Zoo. He had a Vietnamese pig who drove a Cadillac, a parrot who roller skated, and an act that consisted of a chicken dancing while a rabbit played the piano and a duck played the guitar. I said, what tune do they play? He said, their choice. And then the chicken died. I was, of course, heartbroken. I was cheered by the story about it in the New York Times, which was a beautiful story. Obviously, somebody who had played the chicken many times <laughs> was, had respect for an opponent even after being beaten by the chicken that many times. I've, I've seen congressmen sent off with less effusive obituaries. <laughs> There were still people in Hot Springs, Arkansas, who trained chickens, but the chicken was not replaced. Uh, another one of those electronic games came in its place. From what I heard, the animal people had put some pressure on the arcade not to have the chicken. By animal people, I do not mean people who, as infants, were thrown clear in a plane crash in Africa and were raised by orangutans. I mean people with a special concern for animals. And they can be quite persistent. I once wrote a column about something I had heard on, on CBC in Canada, uh, that a hummingbird weighs as much as a quarter. That's an interesting fact. I, what, I, what I made me think was, does it weigh as much as two dimes and a nickel? Uh, but my daughters were sort of alarmed by how you'd go about weighing a hummingbird, because they always seemed to be in motion. And to set their minds at rest, I said, well, we've all seen those nature documentaries where somebody shoots a dart, a stun dart into a wildebeest, 
and after a while, after putting some tracer on it, wakes up and it's good as new. You do the same thing with hummingbirds. Um, the hard part isn't even hitting them with that little bitty dark. The hard part is slapping them on the cheeks to bring them around. Um, the animal people objected to that. Once I happened to mention in a column that corgis are a breed of dog that appear to have been assembled from parts of other breeds of dogs. <laughs> and not the parts those dogs were all that sorry about losing. You know. You'd be surprised how many corgi owners there are. Well, I, um, I was, my hopes for the replacement of the chicken were dashed when it was obvious that the animal people were not going to give up. They said that a chicken playing tic-tac-toe, that was demeaning to a chicken. <laughs> I wish they could have seen the, the film clip that I've seen of B.F. Skinner himself playing tic-tac-toe with the chicken. B.F. Skinner is smiling, but if you look closely, it's a nervous smile. <laughs> Being one of the giants of behavioral psychology, he knows how good that chicken is in tic-tac-toe. The chicken is looking supremely confident he knows he is about to beat in tic-tac-toe a distinguished professor of psychology from Harvard. Demeaning? That chicken is stinky with self-esteem. Thank you. That's Bud Triller one more time. All right. I want to fight a chicken. I want to fight 6,000 chickens at once. I think I could do it. I've always wanted to fight a bear. My wife says, no, you wouldn't win. He has claws. I said, well, you cut his claws. He'd wear gloves. So that's not fair. I was like, I don't have claws. Let's even it up. He'll bite you. I wear a muzzle, and so will he. It's hard being married to me. All right, so uh, that's our show. Uh, a couple of things to remind you of. Um, you can remember, as I said before, you can become a member of the Moth and go over to the table there. Uh, you become a member tonight, and you can join us <clears throat> at our next Moth main stage, which will feature five stories. It's on November 6th at Cooper Union. The theme is Duck and Cover Stories of Fallout. So you can uh, go check that out and become a member. Uh, after the show tonight, please join us uh, at M-Bar at the Mansfield Hotel. That's uh, West 44th between 5th and 6th Avenue. And you can uh, come there and have a drink and we'll stand awkwardly and like say something. And then somebody will walk away and then somebody will go, that's a weird guy. It'll be so crazy to come and do that. 
Uh, and again, check out the new Moth book, 50 True Stories, which does feature stories uh, by Andrew Solomon and Carly Johnstone and our founder, George Dawes Green, who will be uh, available to sign copies of the book if you were so to have them and want them to write in your book. Uh, they'll do that. So uh, a lot of thank yous. Uh, we want to thank our storytellers tonight, Bud Trillin. Carly Johnstone and Andrew Solomon. We want to thank uh, our musician Maz Swift, Paul Holdengraber, and the New York Public Library for having us. Thank you so much. The directors of tonight's show, Catherine Burns and Jennifer Hickson, right down there. And the producer of tonight's show, the amazing Catherine McCarthy. Thank you so much. My name is Peter Aguero. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.